here in the midst of quarantine, we bring to you the battle of the sub $10 bottles of wine from Walgreens. Ooh. Ah. Yeah, that's right. I had to end up at Walgreens buying wine like a wino because I had a prescription that I had to pick up there. I'm more of a CVS guy myself, but uh, I will spoil you with the details. Also, nothing else was open, and we had a hankering for some vino. So I decided to give some of the cheaper options at Walgreens a chance. And as I posted on Instagram lately, I forgot how bad Yellowtail tasted. And it was up against a fairly big and not so unreputable national brand. And at the end of that taste test, one thing was clear, that the true winner was Walgreens. There's a saying in Latin that you'll sometimes see in restaurants, bars, vineyards, that goes, in vino, veritas. Even if you don't speak Latin, many of you can piece that together. It means, through wine, truth. As in, if you drink a bunch, you'll start spilling the beans on whatever secrets you have or inner turmoil uh, is bothering you. I've talked about Mad Men a few times on this podcast, and I probably talk about it so much because at one time I really wanted to be an ad executive, but I didn't want to be an ad executive who works for an agency and does whatever clients want them to do or does whatever campaigns a client asks them to work on. But rather, I wanted to come up with awesome campaigns for clients that didn't even know they needed an awesome campaign. I was obsessed with car commercials for a while and really wanted to pitch another series to Volvo on safety. Regardless, some of you listeners probably hate me by now for not listening to that show, but it's not going to happen. It's going to take more than guys drinking in the office to draw me to a show. I can drink in my own office. Oh, wait, I actually can't anymore. There used to be drinking a lot in the workplace. Of course, it depended on what workplace you were in. I mean, if you were farming in the Middle Ages, you might go and drink some beer when you're hot from the fields at lunch because you couldn't drink the water or you'd die from parasites. And then by the Industrial Revolution, there was probably more alcohol around, more choices, probably a little cheaper, probably a little less likely that you would have some sort of alcohol poisoning unless you just drank a ton. But by that point, there was heavy machinery around. And even if your boss didn't care or your company, there was no OSHA around. So it would have been up to you to police yourself and make sure you don't chop any fingers off because you or your buddy upstream was too drunk to pay attention. I used to be in the Navy, as longtime listeners know. There's such a thing as Navy-proof rum. Granted, I don't believe any Navy, at least any Western Navy, has Navy-proof rum anymore in the service because they don't actually serve drinks aboard ship anymore. I think there is some rule in the U.S. Navy that if you're at sea for more than 90 days or something that you get a ration or two, my quantity might be off and uh, that information may be dated or it could have been even urban legend amongst junior officers at that time. 
Navy Proof rum is called Navy Proof because the proof was that the rum would light when mixed with gunpowder. The Royal Navy passed a regulation at some point whereby rations were governed by a certain timing and quantity and by strength to make sure that the rum wasn't too watered down. The proof comes from the fact that sailors who at one time may have thought they were getting defrauded in terms of the strength of their rum would mix the rum with gunpowder and see if it would light. If it would light, then it was 57% alcohol or higher. So if you're not following along, Navy proof rum is strong stuff. People make the argument that, of course, once industry started being more automated, like I just did a minute ago in terms of the Industrial Revolution, that it made less and less sense for people to be able to drink at work. But does it really make sense when you're at sea? Is that actually safer than a factory? I would argue that it's not. Many folks are aware that the tech industry, even today, maintains a pretty good tolerance of drinking in the workplace. It's truer of startups than that of bigger companies. But even when I was at Amazon, you would see kegs around. And at other venture-funded startups I've worked at, there were frequent happy hours and often a keg or other alcoholic beverage on hand, permissible to use by anyone. Everyone were big girls and big boys there. But why would this be okay at arguably the most productive sector of the modern economy, technology? Is that sector just so productive that they can tolerate more drunkenness in the workplace and still get away with it? Or is there more here than meets the eye? And while there even used to be such a thing as a session IPA, meaning an IPA that was weaker than usual for breaks while you're working in the factory, while there is even such a thing not too long ago outside of gastropubs, actually around the workplace, people now have to not drink at work and get blasted on the weekends and at night. Probably many of them in the knowledge economy, logging in late at night while there are two glasses of wine in. Is that any better? In vino veritas. I originally was going to try to explain why drinking culture has decreased in the workplace, but the record, the explanations on the interwebs are awfully mixed and contentious, and it's hard to buy any of them. Some people argue that, well, actually, not that many people drank in the workplace before. Not as much as depicted in old cinema, old TV shows, and, and Mad Men in the modern TV era. So it's really just a, a misrepresentation of what the reality was. Some people argue along those industrial lines that things actually got more industrial over time, but that actually is not really the case over the last, let's say, 20, 30 years. Things have gotten less industrial. I'll spare you a bunch of other reasons that I think are bogus intuitively or just mathematically false. There are a couple things, though, that 
could explain it. One is a real crackdown on drunk driving in the late 20th century so that you didn't want to get blasted at work. And American culture may also have become more puritanical over the 20th century. And that once you get this confluence of factors, it starts to become a perception problem if you're the first person or the only person cracking a drink in the workplace. I used to have a boss in Seattle, really got along with him. I've had a mixed bag of bosses over the course of the corporate segment of my career. And he used to always go down to this great coffee shop downstairs in the Fiona building, which was named after one of the key characters in one of my favorite books, The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson, which I will link to in the show notes. Anyway, we used to go downstairs to this amazing coffee shop, and he would always order a cortado. Everyone knows what a cortado is now, but do they really? <laughs> but back then, he was the only one I knew who ordered a cortado. I even wrote a blog post which I'll eventually share on thewarriorpoet.com, which was titled, What the Fuck is a Cortado? My point here is, though, that we allow stimulants in the workplace. Granted, not illegal drugs, but it's interesting that you can smoke, granted, not indoors, in almost everywhere, at least in America and increasingly throughout the world. You can smoke as much as you want, <laughs> granted, I'm not talking about smoking weed in every state, although some, that's probably okay. And you can drink as much caffeine, you can have as much Diet Coke as you want. And that actually, if you think about it, puts you in a worse position in dealing with other people. And dealing with other people is such a key part of so many of our jobs now, whether that be clients or coworkers or team members. We've got to align, I hate that word, that word was used so much at Amazon. But we've got to align with people on next steps and action items and strategy and way forward. And let's all lean in on that. Let's add as much corpse speak as we can to that as well so we can all sound pretentiously awesome. If you imbibe or put intravenously through your system a lot of caffeine you're just probably going to end up being a dick. You're not going to be able to hold back when people say stupid stuff and tolerating other people saying stupid things or things that just rub you the wrong way is so key to getting along in the modern workforce. So is it really a good idea to have that double standard? Maybe more people could use that alcohol. And we've all seen, maybe not all of us, but many of us have seen the Productivity, actually, in terms of getting to know your teammates and getting to actually care about them and looking out for them more on work streams in the future because you had a beer together at a work happy hour or some other event. Meanwhile, I've been a part of many conversations where the topic actually turned to work matters over drinks. and. The discussion is not only more enjoyable in those situations, but you actually get a lot of great thinking and often decisions can be made much more quickly than if you're staring at a document, a spreadsheet, 
or a slide deck in a room full of people trying to impress each other. Now that I think of it, though, big lunches can be a real depressant, and there's no rule against eating a full plate of meat and a whole bunch of french fries and a milkshake. And I guarantee that you're going to be a much less productive person for the hour after you do that than if you had had two beers for lunch. I'd argue that stimulus made much more sense building in those coffee breaks at work made much more sense when it was more manual labor or when the knowledge work was much less open-ended. Arguably, things like typing and correspondence, those sorts of things were defined possibly as knowledge work at one time because they simply weren't making rivets. Or I guess you don't make a rivet. I guess you, you, you rivet things. But uh, making widgets is much more of a physically demanding and dangerous task. So all these other menial tasks that actually don't require that much knowledge were probably labeled knowledge jobs at one time. I think coffee breaks were built in during time and motion studies in World War II by governments. I think the UK government led it. And they were just trying to figure out how to get the most out of people. And so they eventually determined what we know now, which is actually building in breaks and giving people stimulants helps a lot in terms of productivity. I believe Daniel Pink talks about that in his awesome book on timing in the book When, which of course, as always, I will include a link in the show notes. So if you're a high energy person in a matrixed org, then drink away. You'll still be higher octane than most of the sober people around you. Or maybe they'll just still be dull, operating at the level of two to three drinks in anyway. And when they look at you with disgust in their puritanical faces, you can reply, Nonsense. I've not yet begun to defile myself. What am I drinking? I'm drinking a French Grenache this episode. It's pretty good. Uh, I'm not used to pure Grenaches coming from France. And to be honest, I'm not a Somme, but I think the rule is if it's above 50% of a certain varietal that they can just call it that name. Let me take one more sip here. Yeah, not bad at all. Not too jammy, but has a really nice character, unique quality that Grenaches often have, but without being too funky. I've got to say, in my career, there have been times where I have found that alcohol sometimes helps the creative process. Granted, sometimes it hurts as well. Steve Ballmer, former CEO of Microsoft, I believe he was right after Bill Gates in terms of the CEO title. And also, I think he was extremely early on in the company. I don't know if he was a true co-founder. Many of you will. Feel free to yell at me on the social meds. Steve Ballmer used to say that there was a certain number of drinks at which you could achieve optimal productivity in a software developer. And I think it was slightly over two, but not quite three drinks in a sitting. 
And obviously, the musicians and artists who have <laughs> taken a lot of drugs and been known to drink more than a little, and who also claimed that it was key to their creative process, they're the stuff of legend. Granted, they're also not role models. And I wonder to myself to what extent it's helping the creative process and to what extent it's just helping them get over their fears and actually put themselves out there and ship something. And then there's some times where having a drink or two just helps me focus, to be honest. And sometimes that's focusing on things that aren't my job, that aren't even a side hustle. Maybe it's just playing the guitar. Note, I'm not a professional guitar player, but I do like to play. I find that I get a lot more out of it. I'm much more into it and sometimes just learn more and can sit longer if I'm having some whiskey on the side. I don't know. Maybe that's just something I tell myself. I haven't done a double blind study. Maybe I just feel like I'm channeling John Lee Hooker or Blind Lemon Jefferson, famous blues players. Regardless, the questions I ask are in vino veritas, in wine, truth. Is that just truth with other people? Or are you actually more truthful with yourself? Just being self-reflective here, sample size of one. With myself, I don't think I'm more honest with myself. If I'm having a drink alone or if I've had drinks with other folks, Regardless of the mood I'm in, I don't think I'm actually more honest with myself compared with journaling, which I haven't done as much, kind of moved on from that. <laughs> it ends up being a pity party, I think. But meditation and activities like that, working out, meditation, that kind of stuff, I find that I'm much more calm and much more productively reflective. But your mileage may vary. Meanwhile, I do think there is something to alcohol adding to the creative process. There are some studies that show that alcohol improves certain aspects of the creative process. And I, I think for a while, the results were mixed. But I did see at least a couple studies that seem to be well done and widely cited. Of course, any, any study that purports to have benefits to alcohol is going to be widely cited, I suppose. So that's not evidence in and of itself. But my hypothesis in thinking about this, preparing for the episode, was that for someone whose brain is on fire, for someone who thinks a lot, which... I don't want to credit myself or this audience with thinking a lot, but you're probably here for a reason. And even in episode zero, been around the breeze block, we talked about having your brain be on fire, obviously not in a painful sense, but electric with ideas and thoughts all the time. I personally have found that having a drink or two 
helps reduce the noise and actually improve focus. Maybe those kids with ADHD just need a couple shots of mezcal. I've not yet begun to defile myself. Now, before we leave this section of the episode, I will cite an article that I'll link in the show notes. We don't want to glorify destructive behaviors here. This article talks about four ways to be more creative without drugs or alcohol. And they cite things like make something awful as your first thing you ship. The saying goes in software that if you're not embarrassed about that first thing that you ship, then you shipped too late. Other ideas include do some things that are new to stimulate your creative muscles. I talked about that in a previous episode where I cited the podcast Accidental Creative. Another idea is to collaborate more. And then finally, the one that I really like the most amongst this list is to make a lot. Just be prolific. James Clear, famous blogger and habit champion, as well as probably Charles Duhigg, the author, both talk about the fact that those who make a lot quickly tend to advance their skills much faster than others. Also check out Mastery by Robert Greene. You must be Doc Holliday. <coughs> well, that's the rumor. You retired too? Not me. I'm in my prime. Many of you are probably aware of the benefit to drinking one glass of red wine a day. I think it's the Mediterranean diet that even incorporates that as part of its regimen that has benefits to the heart thanks to a compound called resveratrol, resveratrol, which I at one point thought about starting a vitamin supplement company based on just resveratrol. That ship has probably sailed by now. But there are other benefits to alcohol as well, one of which isn't limited to red wine. It's potentially reduced Alzheimer's. There are, there's one big study that's widely cited, and I, I believe there are some others that back up the claims that moderate, meaning one drink a day or so, maybe a little less than that, helps clean waste out of the brain. There's a process by which bad byproducts of brain activity get washed out. And I simply need to state that I am not a doctor. This is not a medical show. And I'm not asking all of you to start drinking right now to prevent Alzheimer's. As we say here, you are your own jump master. You are in control of the decisions you make. Do not rely on this program for medical advice. Alcohol does make you more calm. Back to that. Anxiety affects 40 million adults. And there are lots of links between anxiety and creativity. There's an article by a Hollywood psychologist called Turning Anxiety into Creativity in Psychology Today. There's one interesting quote. He says, and as I've said countless times to the creative patients in my practice, struggling with these doubts and fears doesn't say anything about you as an artist. Other than that, you are an artist. I thought that was super 
powerful. That author advises channeling anxiety into creativity. Granted, there's no mention of alcohol in that article, but it does address head-on the link between anxiety and creativity. How many of you out there are anxious and just can't put that into creative action? There might be a lot of subcomponents of that anxiety, such as worrying about whether you'll actually deliver something of value, worrying about whether people will make fun of you or not appreciate your work, worrying about the risk of that endeavor financially, maybe even one that I experience a lot, which is worrying that I'll get bored doing that next venture, which is kind of a, a crazy thing to say. People will choose the boring devil they know over some speculative boredom that they anticipate. That author closes his article with just two words about what you should do with that anxiety. He says, use it. meal just of the bread. I could do a whole meal, just nothing but bread. If I ate that much bread, I'd be 20 pounds heavier. See, I never gain an ounce because, you know, my anxiety acts like aerobics, so I get the exercise. The author of that Psychology Today article is Dennis Palumbo. His column is called Hollywood on the Couch. He goes on to cite examples such as Woody Allen and Richard Pryor. Woody Allen is obviously an anxious guy. He plays himself. Just as I always say, Denzel Washington plays himself. You can easily imagine Woody Allen being anxious his entire life. But of course, that's what makes Woody Allen Woody Allen. I don't think it's limited to the anxiety and the characters he plays. It's hard to let go of the idea that maybe his extreme creativity, and even if you don't appreciate his humor, one must admit that the guy is extremely creative in all of his works. It's hard to imagine that the essence of his creativity isn't married with his inner neurosis. Mr. Palumbo goes on to quote the author and psychologist Rollo May, who I am not that familiar with, but after Getting a little more familiar with his quotes and writings and beliefs, I really want to dig into his work. Rollo May apparently makes the point, maybe not as pithily as Mr. Palumbo, but he basically says, without anxiety, there is no creativity. But with anxiety being such a part of the experience of so many adults, that number I cited earlier was 40 million adults in America suffer from anxiety. That's, as a percentage of the working population, that's a lot of people. It's such a part of the workplace too, increasingly, because we're so interconnected. People aren't just doing businesses in their cottages pre-Industrial Revolution. People aren't just farming in isolation. <laughs> only getting to talk to the people they want. And as the gains to scale in technology or influence are just exponential, 
those opportunities are not available to those who do not put themselves out there and increase their own anxiety. I've got to think that at least a partial salve for that anxiety is alcohol. In the workplace, abstractly, not necessarily in the physical workplace, don't blame Shree if you get caught drinking in your postal truck as you're delivering mail. But perhaps in vino, you can reveal your own deep veritas. Come with me, wine drinking friends. Pull up your pantaloons. Let's step into that vat of crushed grapes and get all the way wet. We're, we're, we're big wine drinkers. Footnote number one, I gotta tell you, I must be so wrong on Sandra O. Oh. That clip that just played was of Sandra O oh in an interview post Sideways, the movie, talking about the experience of that film. And she sounds so different than I thought she would. The things that I'm familiar with with her from are things like Sideways or her character in Grey's Anatomy. I apologize to those Grey's Anatomy fans. That's one of my least favorite shows of all time. And to be honest, even though I can't fault the acting of Sandra Oh, I think her character's neuroticism, the way it was written, just drove me crazy and was just very unrealistic and uh, annoying obviously intentionally annoying by the writers, but uh, just went overboard for me personally. But her interview there, which you should check out in the show notes, along with interviews of other cast members, super interesting. Her demeanor is totally different than what I expected. And uh, she seems great. I think I'd, I'd probably get along with her quite well. But then again, I, I guess she did a great job playing that character, whichever fake doctor it was in Grey's Anatomy, because it, it does seem that she's such a big reason that women loved slash love that show. But I won't get myself in too much hot water trying to analyze that because of all the O's, my favorite is Karen. That was the first few chords of the song Wrapped, or a PT from the album Crush Songs by Karen O. That's a live acoustic performance. Karen O's from the AAEs, which I love. You should definitely get to know them, at least to decide if you don't like them, because chances are you will. You owe it to yourself. I did find it's interesting, Karen O, I knew she was. South Korean, but her actual last name is Orzalek. So maybe she's half South Korean, or maybe she just wanted to marry a Polish guy. Regardless, Karen O oh has enwrapped the best use of the lyrics, that fucking bitch, in any song I've ever heard. 
Her voice is amazing as she sings that song. And I'll link to it in the show notes and share it on Instagram. You should definitely check it out. Okay. Can we go back to sideways for a second as I take another sip of my Grenache? The guy's voice from sideways. Not the Paul Giamatti character. The other guy. I think he was in some sort of 90s sitcom. Uh, and that's where most people know him from. Thomas Hayden Church is his name. That guy's voice is awesome. I think he'd be better off with radio, actually. I mean, he's a good-looking guy, I guess. But his primary notable feature and his gift is his voice. It's kind of a more of a construction-y, foresty Garrison Keeler. <laughs> and as much as I love Guy Raz from NPR and the show How I Built This, I gotta say, Thomas Hayden Church would give either of those guys a run for their money. My only requirement would be that Thomas Hayden Church would give up the three-name thing. I mean, Tom Church is a pretty good name, and I think you could come up with a whole bunch of good nicknames for him, like Hades, or Tommy C, or Tommy Two Times, or maybe Tommy the Converted. Creaky knees and all. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I did. I played streetball in L.A. for yeah. a good 10 years. Oh, yeah. Believe it or not, we are only on foot in number two, but this is a short one for a period. I used to confuse saisons and session IPAs. I took Spanish in elementary school and beyond through college. Never took much French. Try to teach myself from a book at some point. So I know some stuff, but... I just assumed that saison was a French translation of session instead of meaning season, which I believe it does. I learned up before this show that all saisons are farmhouse ales, but not all farmhouse ales are saisons. I'm not sure exactly where you'll use that, because <laughs> anywhere you would use that, someone might be liable to punch you in the face. You're welcome. Footnote number three. As we nerd out about alcohol here, I was debating even including this footnote because we're going down some serious rabbit holes here. But I need to acknowledge, so I don't get a whole bunch of hate mail, that there is a debate over the strength of Navy proof on the interwebs. 57% is the strength at which you can light it when it's mixed with gunpowder. Granted, I haven't tried it, but enough sources seem to substantiate that. And it does seem by logic that the 57% was at one time the actual strength of Navy proof rum and that the word proof, which is used for all alcohol at this point, or at least all spirits, did derive from Navy strength rum and, and that proving test. That being said, apparently for a very, 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 very long time, the actual strength of Navy proof rum was 4.5 below proof. So whatever that is, 52.5%. And finally, that quote earlier, I have not begun to defile myself and one of the fills were both from Tombstone, especially Val Kilmer's performance in that movie was just amazing. 
and in my opinion, deserved an Oscar. Doc Holliday actually was a dentist and he did drink a lot. Granted, I think his drinking problem started when he contracted tuberculosis. I think he also had syphilis, if I remember correctly. So he started drinking heavily as a result of both those conditions. Of course, it didn't seem to affect his congeniality nor his gun shooting prowess. I wonder what his creative spirit was like as he was drinking and doing dental work. I think when he moved from Baltimore, he gave up dentistry for other more adventurous pursuits. Then again, there are two types of creative thinking, at least cited in the literature that I found, which are divergent thinking and convergent thinking. And divergent thinking has very little difference between people who are anxious and those who aren't. Convergent thinking, meaning creative problem solving for a one known answer, a singular result, rather than coming up with a list of ideas, convergent thinking does seem to improve with alcohol. So hopefully his dental patients were spared some atrocities. And with that, dear listener, I hope that one day we can meet up, spill some wine, and share some truth. And in the words of Doc Holliday, Say when. like the warrior poet there's more great content on instagram follow shri the warrior poet on instagram that's s-r-i the warrior poet you can also get to know me on a personal level by following shri actually on instagram as well the warrior poet is produced by laddie with special contributions by spoonman and me shri
No, 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 no. Kevin, me na dua. Spita. Ah!